The second thing is the way our system is set up is the economic incentives. The, the, the best birth from the economic perspective would actually be a scheduled cesarean. And the second best would be a scheduled induction because it generates the most income, the most profit. It enables you to control scheduling. So from, from both those perspectives, it's really the way to go. Having a woman hanging out in labor and um, eventually birthing her baby and taking up a bed in the hospital for 24 hours in, in the, you know, the, the labor and delivery unit um, is, that's not good, you know, from the, from the economic standpoint. You are listening to Hensi Goer on the Birth Worker Podcast. My name is Kylie, and you might have noticed that we have been a little bit quiet over here at uh, the birthworker.com headquarters, and my whole family has been sick with COVID for the last over a week now, and we are just powering through, but uh, barely, barely hanging on. (laughs) You might hear it in my voice, but I'm going to keep this one short today because we have one of my favorite interviews of all time. Hensi Goer is here today to share an interview with you essentially about her entire life's journey on how she got to where she is today. One of her next books is coming out this month. It's actually coming out on August 29th. One of her newest books is called Labor Pain, What's Your Best Strategy? Get the data, make a plan, and take charge of your birth. That is her book that's coming out on August 29th. And Hensi Gore might not need any introduction for most of you here because I just absolutely love her. I recommend all of her books to all of my clients and my students. And it's actually one of her books, The Thinking Woman's Guide to a Better Birth, is actually one of the mandatory reading. It's on the mandatory reading list for Birth Worker Academy. So if you're a student in Birth Worker Academy, you of course know how I feel about Hensi and just how I love the information that she presents. One of my favorite things about her is that she believes that there is no such thing as a non-biased care or unbiased care. And that's one of the things from this entire interview that really stood out to me is because I always thought that non-biased care was something that doulas should offer, that doula organizations tell doulas that, you know, doulas are there for non-biased support. But you'll see, Hensi and I get into it today that That's really just like a fallacy, actually. There's no such thing as unbiased maternity support, unbiased care. And so if us as doulas can stop saying we're unbiased and instead start being just transparent about the support that we can offer, it's going to go a really long way. So without further ado, here is the interview with Hensi Goer. I hope you love it. And if you do, come say hi over on Instagram and let me know what you thought. Hey there, birth nerd. You're listening to the Birth Worker Podcast. My name is Kylie Banks, and I am totally obsessed with birth and equally obsessed with business. And this is the show where I help women turn their passion for birth into a sustainable, profitable, and most importantly, impactful career. All right, let's get into it. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? You know, that's not such an easy question to answer because I don't fall into a nice, neat box. Mm. Um, But my life's work has been reading, analyzing, and synthesizing the research in order to give people access to what the best evidence says is optimal care. Um, I, I have a biology degree which I had at the time when I graduated from college, no idea that I would put this use to it. Um, But that's what I've been doing for mm, the last 35 years or so. And that's been my passion is to help women and um, care providers help women uh, make informed decisions about their care. You said optimal care. Can you explain what optimal care means? Yes, that is actually a concept um, developed by the American College of Nurse Midwives. And um, 
what it basically amounts to is the least intervention that produces the best outcomes given the individual circumstances of the person. And they developed that concept as a way of evaluating um, uh, maternity care because the way the system is set up is it doesn't make a priority of minimizing intervention. In other words, two women can emerge from a birth or a delivery. Um, and well, I think, I think my preface sort of sums it up. There is no priority in how the woman experiences it. It's, it's if you came out alive with a baby in reasonably good shape, what happened between the beginning and the end of that process is irrelevant. The, the only thing that the conventional medical system pays attention to in terms of, of experience or what interventions the woman has is, did you do an adequate job of relieving her pain? So, um, so, so again, I'll, I'll repeat. So optimal care is the least amount of intervention that produces the best outcomes given the individual case, because obviously some pregnancies are more complex than others. But even in those cases, you can come out of a, a difficult labor ending in a cesarean delivery, and in one case couldn't have been avoided, and the woman felt well-supported and is feeling sad and maybe frustrated or disappointed, but she is okay, you know, she's, feeling positive about her experience and how it unfolded. And in the other case, it could have been avoided. The woman is feeling traumatized. You know, you can, you can fill in the blanks. Yeah. You know, through research that I uh, see and have, I've read your books, gone to the actual research and like looked at it. No research is taking into account mother's mental well-being. Well, there are studies of that. Okay. They're mostly, many of them are qualitative studies. Mm -hmm. But yes, there is a lot of information. It's not in the mainstream obstetric research. Yeah. In the sense that it's in the midwifery research or it's in the sociology research or it's in a lot of places you don't find a lot of it in the mainstream journals that obstetricians read. Mm -hmm. And to be frank, obstetricians discount anything that would appear in, a, in something that isn't one of their journals. That's one of the issues. The other, like, just I think we're going to be covering this ground again, but um, what I realized fairly early on is that there's a gap. This is the reason that I got into presenting the research. All right, well, let me give you the short version, which is also in the preface. So I became interested in childbirth based on the experiential difference between the birth of my first child and the birth of my second child. And that was a powerful enough transforming experience as to what a birth experience could be like that I wanted to give this to other women so that they knew that the experience was important and that the decisions they made would affect that experience. So I, um, I trained as a Lamaze teacher and I was certified as a Lamaze teacher. And that was back in 1980, by the way. And when I started teaching, I very quickly discovered from what the my my students, my couples were telling me was was that there was a huge gap between what the research says and and what they were being told by their doctors. Because I don't think with mainstream Lamaze class, I don't think I had very many women who were had midwives. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's when I got interested in. Wait a minute, you know, I can read the research. I mean. It's not that difficult, actually. You don't need to have letters after your name. You just need to 
um, be a critical thinker in terms of, you know, reading critically. You need to have the vocabulary. You need to understand statistical concepts. It's like what they imply and mean. You don't need to be able to calculate them. And so that became my niche. Um, and even to this day, there's not a lot of people in it. The only other person is um, evidence-based birth yeah. um, is, is very focused on that. Mm-hmm. What a fantastic niche. Yeah. I, I feel like a lot of women that get into the birth uh, community they're passion driven and they're almost like spiritually driven. So we need people who have that, but also have the numbers brain. And that's exactly right. who you are. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've sometimes described myself as the literature lady. I stroll mm-hmm. through the gardens of research, collecting bouquets that I can give to people who um, that's not their strong suit. <laughs> yeah. It, and it's fantastic because you've created uh, many books now that help people who like me and your books just sit on my shelf. And whenever I need them, I can just open them and know that I'm going to get, um, a summary of the research and the, uh, research articles linked. So I can actually go look for myself if I want to, which is very cool. See that I think is a key thing in that. I, there's so much out there that's opinion. Hmm. And what I felt was one of the things that I can do, I don't think there's a lot of people who actually track it back to the actual study, but I wanted to, much of what pregnant women hear or read about is like, is the opinion level of it. Like, oh, you should absolutely have an epidural. Why would anybody in their right mind in this day and age go through labor without one? Um, or, oh, you really shouldn't have an epidural. I mean, you just, just all sorts of bad things can happen to you. Like it's really so much better. And, and you're, you're just a total wimp if you're not interested in natural childbirth. What does she do with that? I wanted to make sure that everything I said was transparent, that it was open to why, how I got there and, and what my source was for how I got there and what my, my thought process was. And if you were so inclined, you could, in a lot of cases, go and find that actual material. But at least you had my argument for them, which you could then say, hmm, that makes sense to me. Or no, I kind of think no, that's just kind of baloney. Or, wow, it's really good to know that, but it hasn't changed my mind about what I think is right for me. Mm-hmm. And it's important to know that that is okay too. You don't always have to follow the research in birth. That's the magic that mom's in charge. Well, theoretically, and if you actually read what informed um, consent, which by the way, I always use informed decision-making because one of the hidden language is very powerful. When you say to someone, this is an informed consent document, in their minds, it's the intent is for you to to consent. I think it's informed decision-making. It is always supposed to be the ultimate choice. There is informed refusal. And it's always supposed to allow the person, because this stretches across medicine, this isn't just about maternity care, to incorporate their values, beliefs, feelings, individual circumstances. It isn't just about information. I have a question for you. If the research is there, why doesn't the mainstream medicalized maternity care system know it? Why aren't they practicing if the research is there? Because people, the way people behave is not necessarily based on what's rational. So what you you what you get, well, there are two things going on. One is that there are drivers other than what the research says, which are underpinning the system. And we can talk about those. Mm-hmm. The other problem 
is actually something that I've watched develop over the years that I've been doing this. When I first got involved in looking at the research, what you found was essentially opinion um, and studies that contradicted that opinion. What has happened over the years, the second piece of the problem is there is now a ton of research where the conclusions of that research support what obstetricians want to do. Essentially, we have what um, I'm blanking, Phil Hall, may his memory be a blessing, was a very progressive obstetrician who coined the phrase decision-based evidence-making. Mm. <laughs> so that's so, what you have now. And obstetricians are in their bubble. Do we want to start with the drivers or do we want to continue with an example of what I mean by doctors can now point to the research and say it supports what they're doing when if you look deeper, it doesn't. Let's start there. Evidence being made based on the opinion. Evidence-based decision-making. Yeah. I mean, decision-based evidence-making. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So anyone who is pregnant at this point and isn't going to a midwife is very likely to find their obstetrician recommending um, that labor be induced at 39 weeks. That comes from a very large randomized control trial, which uh, took healthy first time you know, mothers and assigned them, that's what a randomized control trial does is it, it um, creates two equal groups by random assignment. You're, you're going to get this treatment or you're going to get that treatment. And in this treatment at 39 weeks, you had a routine induction of labor, perfectly healthy women. And the control group got um, what they called expectant management. That didn't necessarily mean that you just waited for labor to start on its own unless some sort of complication developed. That meant that you probably also would have an induction too, but sort of more down the line. You certainly would have an induction at 41 weeks because of a whole bunch of literature that I won't go into on that one. But anyway, so now you've got these two populations. And it turned out that the women who had a routine induction at 39 weeks, um, had a 19% cesarean rate. And the women who had expectant management um, had a 22% cesarean rate. And so what you, and it was a very well-conducted trial, nothing wrong with it. So now you have proof that the best thing to do is to induce all women at, at 39 weeks. And that's being recommended widely. I won't go into some of the weaknesses of the trial, but I will say this, the women who were entered into that trial were women who would have been eligible for um, a birth center or home birth. They were very healthy women. They could have had their babies at a birth center or a home birth. We have studies of birth center and home birth outcomes where again, a certain percentage of women will end up needing to be transferred to the hospital and needing to have cesareans or they'll develop a complication very late in pregnancy that means they need to have a hospital birth, okay? And this, remember, 19% was the low rate in this totally healthy population, okay? Um, the range in rates, and I have maybe 10 different studies in women who were planning out of hospital births, was eight to 13%. <laughs> yeah. So what that tells you is if that's an achievable, and outcomes were good, obviously. I mean, most of the women who were transferred in labor still end up with a vaginal birth. I mean, they need some Pitocin to help the labor, whatever, but they, you know, and any, it, that, that tells you if that's the achievable rate, then there's something really wrong with your system. However, how do you argue with that? This yeah. has been my problem, which is yeah. it got to be a much deeper problem. When I wrote my very first book, which was published in, I think, 1989, 
I want to say. No. 1995. I think it, it was still an issue of, so you're hearing these opinions, but here, here's what the research says. I now have a much deeper problem, which is, so you're hearing your doctor tell you that's what the research says. Mm. Here's my analysis of why what the, the, the flaws in the argument. Wow. Unfortunately, obstetricians are living in a bubble where this is what they get. Mm-hmm. which I guess could take this to part two of your question, which is what are the drivers that have nothing to do with cognitive processes? Yeah. And yeah, that's definitely one of them. They, they're uh, living in this bubble and it's not necessarily their personal fault. It's like, that's how the system was built from medical school. And I've had conversations with obstetricians and they all say the same thing, um, whether or not their cesarean rate is, you know, 12% or 35%, they say the same thing that it really started with how they were taught in their medical school, which is a scary thing. People like me think, well, how do we, how do we change it then? Uh, Cause it's so uh, internalized. It's so it's in the system. That's how the system was built. So it's actually multi-layered. Um, first of all, this is human nature. I mean, yeah, there are some bad actors out there, just as there are in any field, who really don't care. <laughs> I mean, they're not good people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the vast majority of people think they're doing the right thing. So this is about human nature, and this is about being enmeshed in a system that isn't Supportive. So I, I I actually was was thinking about what you said and and I ran sort of you know I wanted to make sure that I covered them. Mm-hmm. The first and the biggest one, which you said, which is how you're trained in medical school. One of the problems is obstetrics and gynecology is a surgical specialty. Its premise is that things are going to go wrong, and you, the physician, are the person to really keep a tight control so that they don't go wrong and and to proactively introduce whatever you can to control that process it's that that naturally if you just leave things to do what they want to do you're going to see disaster so you have to be right in there in charge making sure that everything goes exactly the way it should and if it doesn't jump in there Okay, so that's problem number one. So that's the underpinning of what you do and how you see yourself as as being what pregnancy and birth need to produce healthy outcomes. Okay, the second. So that's a huge. The second thing is the way our system is set up is the economic incentives. The, the, The best birth from the economic perspective would actually be a scheduled cesarean and the second best would be a scheduled induction because it generates the most income the most profit it enables you to control scheduling so from from both those perspectives it's really the way to go having a woman hanging out in labor and um, eventually birthing her baby and taking up a bed in the hospital for 24 hours in, in the, you know, the, the labor and delivery unit um, is, that's not good, you know, from the, from the economic standpoint. And um, things like staffing. Um, if yeah. you can predict your staffing, that's a huge economic savings. Uh, there's, um, so that's number two is economics. The third thing is defensive medicine. The belief that if you perform, if you didn't perform a cesarean, you're much more likely to get sued. And if you did perform the cesarean, you should have done it earlier. That would have prevented the lawsuit. Now, actually, there's actually some data that's like, you know, if you set yourself up, which the obstetric profession has, If you think about it, the exchange between the obstetrician and the woman, the the subtext of that is you turn your body over to me and I will guarantee you a healthy baby. That is the subtext. You have to take the drugs I tell you to take. 
mind the test I tell you to, you know, to have. When I say it's time to be induced, agree to that. When I say it's time for a cesarean, agree to that. The subtext of that is you need to do those things because I can give you a healthy baby. Well, what's going to happen if, you know, God forbid, it's not a healthy baby. She's going to turn around and say, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. Because that was the subtext of the message that you gave her. If you, if you want to know why you are so likely to get sued if there's a problem, look in the mirror, you know? <laughs> That's such a great point. Yeah. Read the subtext. <laughs> Read the words so, on your forehead. If, if you didn't set yourself up as God, you know, you, it, it would be far less of a problem. Yeah. Okay, so I that, uh, so read recently <laughs> that. I read recently that uh, a midwife can be assisting a birth that has the same negative outcome and she's a lot less likely to get sued by that parent. And that explains that perfectly, what you just went into. Yeah, it doesn't make it zero. I mean, when things go wrong, again, it's hum- It's very painful. It's human nature. You, you want to find some reason like, well, if we had done this or we hadn't done that, the outcome would have been different. And so it, that's always there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't, um, uh, so, but, so now we've got beliefs about the dangers, inherent dangers of childbirth. We've got economic incentives. We've got defensive medicine. And the final thing is convenience. Mm. Yeah. So the, the, first of all, the system is set up in certain ways. At this point, I think the percentage of women who have epidurals in labor is probably in this country. Um, if you if you get it down to the to the women who actually were on the floor laboring, it's probably in the mid seventies to low eighty percent. So that means you have a, a an intrapartum unit that is set up for everybody to be on an epidural. Well, if you have someone who isn't, well, first of all, you haven't actually been taught how to be helpful to her. Number two. She interrupts your routine because she demands more time. So you have a system that is set up to induce her, to give her an epidural, to keep her in bed, to, to have her being monitored from a central state. You know, all of this is the convenience of the thing. And also, you know, from both the doctors and the, the nursing staff standpoint, that is the most efficient, convenient way of running a service. Okay, put those all together. I, um, this is just a sort of tidbit. I'm, I'm reading a study for my next blog post now. And it was a, a randomized controlled trial in women who were at high risk to have small for gestational age babies meaning a baby who is in the lowest 10% that you would expect at that, whatever that gestational week was. And they had three arms to the child. They had usual care. They had women who were assigned uh, the Mediterranean diet, which is uh, high in grains and fruits and vegetables. And they gave them walnuts and olive, you know, olive oil and and they had group meetings and they had individual counseling but they 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 were on this special diet the other the third arm of the trial was mindfulness and they had specially guided programs and again they did it in groups and they had individuals but it was about mindfulness why did they pick those two things because one of the things that we know about small for gestational age it's, is that, well, first of all, you are more likely to have an adverse outcome in a small for gestational age baby. I mean, many of them are born healthy, but the odds are higher for morbidity. And there is known that there's a connection between stress, now you've got the mindfulness, and also sort of inflammatory processes and the Mediterranean diet is one that reduces inflammation processes. And also, there is no treatment for small for gestational age. There's no drug they can give you that will help you grow a bigger baby. 
great trial, right? Guess what they found? It worked. Wow. They had a reduction in small for gestational age in both arms of the trial in women who are at high risk for it. And then I read the commentary on it. And I realized that it was kind of put in this, like you had to read between the lines. But what it basically said was, this was very expensive and time consuming and the system isn't set up to provide it. Wow. Wow. I mean, they they didn't say it that baldly. I know, I know. It counted to. Yeah. We don't have a system that meets pregnant women's needs. Absolutely. Everything from, it starts back up those four things you listed, everything from the bottom, which is convenience. It's not set up. We don't have the staff. We don't have the rooms. We we don't have the obstetricians. Um, Yeah. I wish I could. I. I don't want to name a name because I'm not sure that, that she was the one who said it, but I remember a long time ago going, I'm pretty sure that I, I was at a talk that was being given by a progressive obstetrician. And what she said was, our system, our prenatal care system is set up to say, are you sick? So you come in and they weigh you and they check your urine and they measure your belly, which are all, or they have some tests you're supposed to take, which are all ways of saying, are you sick? And if the answer to the question is no, then it's like, we'll come back next month and we'll ask the same questions. There is nothing in the system about promoting health and well-being. It's mm-hmm. not set up that way. It's a medical system. Mm-hmm. And the, um, and I, the midwives model of care, and I'm being very deliberate about that because not all midwives, you, you have to be careful who you choose as a midwife. The, the dice are in your favor, but not necessarily. Okay. But the model of care, which is all about promoting health, it I think is one reason why midwives make a difference. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I think one of the other elements of that trial is something called the Hawthorne effect which is when you pay attention to people and they feel looked after and taken care of. So I think if they had just handed someone the diet or said, you know, go watch this video on how to, you know, do mindfulness meditation, they wouldn't have seen the effect. I think what they were really seeing is in both groups, in addition to the benefits, and by the way, the nice thing about this is there are no harms. There isn't a single drug or treatment that's medical that doesn't have harms as well as benefits. I think they were seeing the Hawthorne effect and the system is, you know, and, and we've seen that all over the whole centering pregnancy concept with group pregnancy meetings and, mm-hmm. and sort of that informational component in addition to individual time with your care provider reduces preterm births. Wow. That's really, that's really cool. I didn't know that. That's, I need to look into that. That's fabulous. It's what a great case to create communities in our, in our area, like in our hometowns, communities, and specifically really communities of people that um, flow like you and believe things like you. And uh, yeah, that's really cool. Now I'm not saying this is the thing about optimal care. This is not about natural childbirth. which everybody wants to sort of layer onto this. This is about the least amount of intervention. Mm -hmm. Now, you think about um, disadvantaged communities and the injustices and inequities that you think about. I mean, all pregnant women are disadvantaged by how they are treated in this. And certainly... um, trans people who are pregnant, uh, you know, then you can start to layer on top of this, the intersectionality, which makes things even worse. And you can layer on race and you can layer on age and you can layer on um, low income and you can layer on all of these things, which increase the probability that you are not going to get optimal care in the system. Mm -hmm. And is that rooted in uh, like internalized bias? Yeah, bias, assumptions, um, you know, you name it. Mm-hmm. 
Because interestingly enough, in this study, as it turned out, um, because of where it was done and who it was being done with, the vast majority of the participants, it was actually a Spanish study, the vast majority of participants were white and um, middle or upper income. Mm -hmm. So imagine imagine what the rates would have been in a, a, you know, a less a, a population that had additional stressors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Is there, um, can you talk a little bit about how research is funded and how they find participants and why that in itself might be a little bit biased if you think it is? <sighs> You know, I don't have a lot of access to that. I can say that a lot of research is funded by drug companies and and also there isn't much of an incentive to do because they're terribly expensive to do, to you know, to do them right. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a lot of incentive to um to fund studies um that that aren't that don't have a connection to something that someone can make money off of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you what the classic example of that is, is this idea that progesterone injections will prevent preterm birth. Ooh, tell me more about that. Okay. I don't normally get involved with anything. I, you know, I'm kind of, because I'm not a doctor, I'm not a midwife. I'm not even a PhD. I don't get involved with complicated pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, let's see. How can I give you a short version? There was a theory that progesterone treatments would reduce preterm births because progesterone in its effects is known to sort of quiet the uterus. And there was a randomized trial, I think it was published in 2003, which, um, which found that progesterone injections greatly decreased pre repeat preterm births. In other words, once you've had a preterm baby, you're at higher risk for having another one. So, and everybody got all excited about that. Except if you looked at the trial, you would see that when they were developing the trial, they established what sort of the baseline repeat preterm birth rate was. And then they figured out how many people they would need in the trial to reduce it by a particular percentage. It's called a it's called a power calculation. Um, and what they found in the baseline population was that the repeat preterm birth rate was um, I think it was it, it was in the low thirty percent. And they. Um, and they said, okay, so if our, if, what, if our idea is valid, we're going to see a reduction off of that. And when they got the results, they saw the reduction, but it wasn't because they had reduced it from the baseline rate. It turned out that in the, um, the, um, the control group, the rate was 55%. The rate in the treated group was in the low 30%. So in effect, their treatment had no effect. But what was published was that we got this amazing decrease. If you read the study, they actually did say that in the study, but man, that was lost in the, oh my God, yeah. we've, we've got preterm birth. They went to the FDA. The FDA, I don't know what they were smoking that day, but the FDA looked at, and what they went to the FDA was, the same thing we've just, um, um, they went to the FDA and said, give us preliminary approval. And the FDA looked at it and, and, and said, okay, you need to conduct a trial, a bigger trial. And yes, we'll give you preliminary approval because there's nothing effective for preterm birth. So yeah, we will. It took them the trial. So when they got the approval, this was in 2009. The trial was not published until 2019. 
Wow. It was a much, yeah, it's like, hmm, that's interesting. Okay. One of the reasons was they couldn't, I, I've, I've written a blog post on this. One of the, because I've been following this for years. One of the reasons was because they couldn't recruit people because now that everybody was treating with progesterone injections in these big institutions that would be candidates for, you know, running the trial, they were saying, no way, Jose, am I going to assign a woman or is she going to agree to not, you know, have yeah. the potential of not getting this treatment? Anyway, they published mm -hmm. it in, in, in 2019. It was a very well done trial. And here's where we're getting to the point that you want to make. Oh, I forgot a piece. The moment at the time that the FDA gave approval, um, if you wanted to give uh, progesterone injections, they were about um, 30 bucks an, ingest, uh, an injection. So if you had one every, you know, basically to treat one woman would amounted to about $350, except there was a drug company behind this. And the moment that they got the preliminary approval, they came out with McKenna, which was a um, patented version of progesterone. And the treatment jumped to like $35,000. Oh okay. So now you had these doctors, all of whom were connected to the drug company running the trial. They did the trial and the trial showed no benefit. You got exactly the same percentages in both the, the um, treatment group and the control group. And then they did this, well, it was spin doctoring by real spin doctors. So they did this dance about how, well, we didn't, there was this and there was that, we really need to do more research. So it really isn't what you think you're seeing. And even after that trial came out showing no benefit, um, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the, oh, what's it called? The subgroup of them that are particularly about perinatologists came out in support. After this trial came out, the FDA then held a hearing and um, they, the, the committee who was reviewed the trial almost didn't recommend it was seven, it was nine to seven to recommend withdrawing the drug. One, one more vote. So there was still after this trial. Wow. And that was in 2019 and it still hasn't been resolved because the drug company is entitled to a hearing and yada, yada, yada. And so it's still being prescribed to women. You bet it is. Oh my goodness. That is a big rabbit hole. And that's just the tip, the, the beginning of it. I assume, I assume something like that happens with thousands of drugs across the world. Yeah. But the, but the key point, and I'm sorry, it took me so long to get to it is when you were talking about why does the research the way it is? Yeah. That's it. The other the other thing that happens with with the research studies is because you are doing them in a system which is imposing all sorts of interventions that aren't really needed or necessary. One of the things about epidurals is you end up needing a whole bunch of other things because you've had an epidural. You you need to be on continuous monitoring. You're confined to bed and being out of bed and moving around freely can help the labor progress. You uh, can't eat or drink anything. You're on IV. You're, um, you're very likely to, to get have pitocin. And all of those things have harms connected with them. Um, but if you think, and if you look at the studies, and you say, yeah, but if you have an epidural, it doesn't change the cesarean rate. Well, even if you don't have the epidural, you're in a system where you're very, you're, you're going to have monitoring. You're very likely to have Pitocin. You are not allowed to eat or drink. You're not really allowed to be out of bed. So it's like you are measuring you're not really, you have to change the system 
in order to to see its benefits. Or mm-hmm. I just thought of another one that might be simpler, which is we know that vaginal birth is harder on the pelvic floor than cesarean delivery. I mean, that's sort of one of the things they keep talking about is, however, is it vaginal birth? Or is it that she's on her back, essentially being Mm -hmm. told, push, 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 come on, take a deep breath and push. And that she is being told to start pushing as soon as she's fully dilated, as opposed to waiting until she has a natural urge because the head's descended low enough. So is it vaginal birth or is it the whole system? And she's terrified that she's going to tear and nobody is reassuring her that what she's experiencing is a normal sensation and just relax and sort of around it, you know, just all of the things that might um, protect her pelvic floor. Yeah. I, I, I don't disagree that, that, yeah. Pelvic floor issues can arise from vaginal birth, but we're not looking at an optimal circumstance for minimizing that possibility. Yeah, it's so important to think critically about it, even if it's a well uh, put together study, even if it's great research, you have to look at it with a critical eye. So you have much of the obstetric research being produced in sort of this echo chamber. Tell me about what led you to write your first book, Um, because in my I I think from what I've heard from you that you wanted to make this information, the research available to women, to women so they can actually uh, make decisions, inform decisions for themselves. Well, the first book actually came when I was a Lamont's teacher and I was hearing the women in my classes saying, well, of, of course you have to have continuous fetal monitoring because you know otherwise we won't be able to catch that there's something going wrong with your baby. Um, and I, I had been curious about the research and I had, you know, as I was teaching my classes, I, I just, I wanted to help women make informed decisions. So I was talking. So what I realized was, gee, you know, um, I'm interested in reading the research and I would really like to have a book on my shelf that that would help me with that and summarize the research. So I wrote it. <laughs> and that was <laughs> Obstetric Myths versus Research Realities. And that came out and was well received. So I guess other people also wanted to have that book on their shelf. Yes. <laughs> and then I was thinking, well, you know, it's pregnant women themselves that also need access to this. And so that's how I got involved in writing The Thinking Woman's Guide to a Better Birth. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between those two if people don't have the two of them? Obstetric myths was kind of more high level. And um, Thinking Woman's Guide was actually aimed at pregnant women and had sort of the information like, what do you do with this information in, in terms of making informed choices? Mm-hmm. Uh, frankly, while there is some sound information in it, I'm surprised it's still selling because that book was written, was published in 1999. And there have been some real changes um, since then. So that actually is, I mean, I know you want to, we want to talk about the intermediate steps, but uh, that's one of the reasons I'm I'm back to writing books. Well, Mm -hmm. maybe we should fill in the blank there. The next thing was I wanted to do a new edition of obstetric myths, you know, sort of the more higher level one. And in this case, um, I partnered with Amy Romano, who is a a certified nurse midwife and also had a a master's in nursing. And we wrote that together. And that book was um, Optimal Care in Childbirth, the case for, for a physiologic approach. And again, we use that deliberately because... Sometimes you do need to have the interventions. And that book was published into 2012. I thought uh, I, 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 I then wanted to take the newer research that we had done and do the same thing, make it available to pregnant women. And what I decided to do was 
everything was on the internet. So I came up with the idea of doing streamed slide lectures. And I set up Childbirth U, as in a university about childbirth issues. And from 2013 to, well, really last year, I struggled to, I just wasn't getting traction with it, but whatever I tried to do. And my most recent marketing person, who I'm still working with, said, you know, we really need to do a focus group and have some people take a look at your lectures and talk about what they want and need. And the message I got back from that is great material, not very accessible. And so I realized I needed to go back to, I wanted to go back to writing the book. And um, and here's where it gets interesting. As it turns out, my my uh, one of my daughters who makes her living as an audiobook narrator, and you can look up books by her. Her name is Sarah Goer. See? Um, I'm very proud of her. She She's a SAG actress, and this is how she makes her living. Is also entrepreneurial, and she was wanting to start a small press so that she could publish materials that, number one, she'd like to narrate, and number two, that she wanted to see out in the world but weren't likely to find a traditional publisher with ease. And so she is publishing my, my first book. In her previous lifetime, when she was trying to make it in Los Angeles, she worked as a writing tutor. So she has worked with me to, and also she's in my demographic for who I want to be speaking to. And she helped me to find the voice to talk to the pregnant women of today. And I, I hope I found that. So what I decided to do was to basically take those lectures and transform them into a series of books, but in a very different voice and style, but still with my brand, which is, I'll give you what you need. Number one, I'll give you what you need to make an informed decision. I will also be transparent and tell you what it's based on and give you um, there's a couple of chapters that have what I call the deeper dive and give you information that many women won't be interested and won't want. But if you do, it's there. Um, and most importantly, and I think this is where I'm unique, is the the last chapter is the takeaway chapter, which says, OK, you've got all this information. You have your ideas about what you want. How do you implement it in a way like, what are the tips, hints, ideas, strategies for how to maximize the odds of you are getting what you want, including letting you know about some pitfalls that you might not have thought about mm -hmm. and, and, and how strategies for dealing with them. Yeah. And what is uh, the first book is all about pain. Is that right? It's going to be a series. Right. Um, and that's tricky to talk about because we wanted to. Again, I didn't want to fall into the extremes of either camp. One being that this is unbearable. You have to have an epidural. Don't even try. You'll end up with an epidural anyway. And at the other end, it's like, if you're in the right space, you won't feel a pain. You'll feel rushes. Or um, Yes, that is possible for some people. But mm -hmm. I think pregnant women and pregnant people, um, the, one of the things, I, like the first thing on their minds is concern that they're, they'll have a healthy baby. The next thing on the list is how <laughs> to deal with labor pain. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So again, the title was a long time coming and went through many iterations so we could get it, hopefully that it transmits exactly what we want it to transmit. And the title is labor pain, colon, what's your strategy, question mark. And the mm -hmm. subtitle is get the data, make a plan, take charge of your birth. Because I wanted to 
give women agency. Yeah. And I, you're uh, unusual. You're a unicorn in uh, the maternity care world because it is so divided and very few people really truly try not to bring their biases in and they're not objective. Like you said, we can't be objective, but we can be transparent and you're truly transparent. And I, I see that when I read your books that I, I understand your beliefs and I understand your biases, but I don't feel like you're pushing them onto me when I'm reading your books. So you. <laughs> you couldn't have said anything better to me because, and interestingly in the process of translating the lecture into the book, it was so helpful to have my daughter's feedback because she helped me dig out. I mean, I thought I was really doing a good job and I was, but she really helped me dig out and reframe and, and rewrite some, some of the passages. Um, and I'm, I'm excited about its potential. <laughs> And I know it's not geared towards um, birth workers. You're very specifically talking to, uh, will, will you tell us in your words who you're talking to when you're writing these books? Yeah, what we got to in the preliminary discussions about the book was I wanted to picture, well, perhaps I should, uh, because it can be edited out. Um, so my journey with the book as we started to discuss, where is my voice for this book? For anybody out there who's ever written a book um, that's nonfiction, or maybe even fiction as well, is you, you need to find your voice. And what's out there a lot for pregnant women now is I'm your girlfriend, or you know I've just been down this path and now I can help you because I have. That's not going to work for me and that's kind of not my brand. On the other hand, I realized that the problem I had come to with the lectures was that I was kind of standing at the podium talking to an audience, like, you know, a TED Talk, which is all very well, but that wasn't right. And what I, we finally got to that really helped me bring in the voice that I wanted was we're sitting at a kitchen table. I'm talking to you. We both have our cups of tea. I am helping you figure out, I'm acting as a resource. I'm helping you figure out what it is that is right for you and what it is that you're wanting, giving you the information on the pros and cons of all your options that will help you do that. And then helping you process through like, okay, so now you have your ideas about that. How are you gonna get there? Mm. And creating sort of like a, a no judgment zone. Yeah. And, and really, also that respects you as an adult who is perfectly capable of making the decision about what's right for her, even if that's not what I would choose. For, you know, like I don't mm -hmm. have any sense of like, well, I wouldn't choose that for me. So that's got to be wrong for you. Yeah. And what are the other books down the line? So this first one is about pain. What other books can we be looking forward to? Um, I'm, I started work on book two, um, and that's going to be on induction. Okay. We, my daughter and I thought that we sort of like to build the brand, we'd hit sort of the big controversial issues that are that are forefront in a, because one of the things we're doing that I am it's like it's 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 new and different is if you're going to get a book about pregnancy well i mean typical you um you're probably going to get one that's soup to nuts like like uh, penny simpkins book pregnancy childbirth and the newborn which is a great book or um giving birth with confidence um i'm doing something different these are short books on a single topic and um, so it's going to be interesting to see if 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 we can catch the audience who isn't necessarily looking for a single topic book. So we thought we would start with ones that were where there was a lot of controversies around the issues. Um, and so labor pain was the obvious first one. Induction was kind of the obvious second one. 
I'm, I'm, we haven't gotten as far as stating what we would do for a third one, but, uh, but VBAC is high on the list. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I still haven't figured out what I, I mean, the things we've tossed around are like, sort of the fundamental choice making, like choosing a care provider, choosing a place of birth and choosing um, a support team, like the argue, you know, the whole, the doula research information. I don't know, I think I need to establish the brand first mm-hmm. because most people who, I think those are actually the books I would love to have written first, because if you've got, if you've chosen your care provider, someone who's in line with what you're thinking, and you've chosen the place of birth that feels like the right place for you, um, you can, three quarters of your work is done because you can, I mean, you still want to be a full participant and ask questions and have discussions, but you basically set things up the right way. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, it's it's just the practical world is that you have to do something that is going to work practically for your your brand and for the vision too. Um, and I know, yeah, pain has got to be the first one. So I'm glad you chose that first because, yeah, like you said, right under healthy baby, pain is like right there almost at the same um, when people think about their upcoming birth. Um, do you have a potential release date or release season for your book for anyone listening? We do. <laughs> it's later than I thought it would be. Uh, however, it is, ta-da, August 29th. August 29th. Fantastic. Yeah. We were hoping to get the book out this spring, but this and that intervened. And then as we looked at the summer where I have plans and my daughter has plans and my marketing person has plans. We just went like, okay, let's just give it up and say, we'll come out right around Labor Day, which I guess has the advantage of we can build a launch campaign around Labor Day. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do? I see that you are autonomy mommy. Yes. So I am, uh, I started as a birth doula. I started in this uh, community when I, right before I conceived, while I was trying to conceive. And what happened is I was listening to birth stories and they just didn't sit right with me. Uh, The birth stories I was hearing was very, let me give up my power and someone else is going to make decisions. And I'm not that kind of person. I'm very like, uh, I butt heads with authority. I want to be in charge. Um, so from day one, I was like home birth, I'm going to have a home birth. Um, and I just went down the rabbit hole and fell in love with birth. And I did have a home birth and I became a doula doula transitioned into educating. So I love making, like, I love the act of like making, uh, curriculums and things like that. So doula turned into childbirth educator. I do both. Um, and now it's turning into mentoring doulas because I also in that time created a very successful business. So I'm going to help doulas do what I did and, uh, be able to hold space because holding space, I think is the foundation. You cannot have a lot of knowledge, but if you have that energy, I think you're a great support person. So the foundation of holding space on top of that, the knowledge and the education and the research. And then on top of that, how to actually make this something sustainable because people burn out so fast. And I know we talked about this on our chat the other day, but um, it's hard to witness birth. It's hard to witness birth period, um, especially when you're witnessing it uh, inside the medical system. So we, we burn out. (laughs) Um, It's amazing. You've been doing this work for so long and you found your little niche that, that works for you. I you, I see you lighting up in the same way I have in, in finding that passion. And I also hear um, that's why I, I burned out as a doula because, you know, I was standing by and, and it was just, it was just too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and isn't it's, it's, I can share this with you. It's so amazing when you find something where you don't just have a job. Yes. You know, that's great. And that's fine. Yeah. And, but you have something that is that you're giving that that still it is it, it is a career. I think that one of the the issues that any 
buddy who's involved in birth confronts is burning out because there is just, it's very intense work and, and it can often be very difficult work. So let me give you a bit of wisdom from my faith tr tradition. This is from Pirke Avot, which translates as the wisdom of our fathers. It's a book in the Talmud. And what it says is, you are not obliged to complete the work. Neither may you depart from it. Mm -hmm. And I have found over the years that has been a terrific help in terms of like, I don't have to do it all. I am not going to be able to fix everything as much as I would like to. But I just need to keep doing what I know how to do to make the world, to help make the world a better place. Thank you so much for listening today. Hey, by the way, while you're here, I have a couple announcements to make. Number one is that Birthworker Academy is open right now for enrollment. The next cohort starts on December 1st, 2022. And there is an early bird registration period open this week only. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and check out birthworker.com academy and check out more about Birthworker Academy. But also, Hensi's newest book is coming out on August 29th. So keep your eyes peeled, especially over on my Instagram, either at The Autonomy Mommy or at Birthworker Podcast, because I am sure to be talking about the release of Hensi's newest book, which again comes out on August 29th, and it's called Labor Pain, What's Your Best Strategy? All right, everyone, I will see you right back here next week where I will be chatting with a woman named Claire who is a hypnotherapist, and she's going to be sharing all about how her birth experiences completely changed the trajectory of her career.